Okay, so First Thessalonians 5 and verse 12. So a reading from First Thessalonians 5 and verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I endure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, it's hard to believe, but uh, we've come to basically the end of the letter to the Thessalonians. And it's been hopefully a blessing to you. I know it's been a blessing to me. Now today's sermon is interesting because Paul closes here with a list of sort of staccato instructions. And he leaves them with a number of things that he wants them to conduct themselves with in the church community as they live out their faith. Uh, Instructions that will lead to a healthy church body. Now what's significant about all these categories is that each one could stand alone as its own sermon. Like look at verse 12, for example. He says, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you. We could do a whole sermon on what it is to respect church leadership. In verse 15, he says, Do not um, repay one another with evil for evil. We could do a whole sermon on retaliation. In verse 15, uh, sorry, verse 17 He tells us to pray without ceasing. We could do a whole sermon on what it means to pray without ceasing. And verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. That's this whole sermon in and of itself as well. So you can see like there's there's a list of multiple, multiple sermons we could do here. Now, even though I could dedicate this morning or each week going forward to each one being a sermon, I've chosen to do the whole thing in one fell swoop. And the reason is, is it just makes sense in my mind to do this as a congregation because we're heading into Christmas. The 10th, the 17th, 24th, and 31st are dedicated to Christmas. I would not want to leave, finish the entire letter, leave one sermon to go into January. We've got this sort of congruent thinking all the way through. I feel it makes the most sense to finish the letter and then start something new in the new year. But as I encourage you always, may each topic be a subject matter around the kitchen table as you discuss what do these things really mean. So I'm giving you a snapshot, a snapshot of each thing, but not going into huge detail. So let me give you the outline so you understand what is going to happen this morning. Really, he divides the letter in this last section, I should say, into three segments. One, he wants to help you and I understand our attitude towards church leadership. Secondly, he wants us to understand our attitude towards one another. And thirdly, our attitude towards God. If we get these three things right, Paul's going to tell us you will have a healthy church body. Good message to go into the new year with. So let's look first of all at our attitude towards church leadership. Verses 12 and 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, I have to admit, these opening verses are a bit awkward for me because it sounds like I'm touting for your respect. And I'm demanding that you treat me a particular way. 
but I'm reminded that these are not my words to you, but Paul's. Not only that, Paul would say, these are not my own words, these are Jesus's. Jesus has taught, Jesus has taught me, and now I'm teaching you what it is to relate to church leadership. I'm also reminded, though, that because of the growth of Genesis House, I am not the only leader here anymore. We have multiple people that serve in leadership. So this message also is not just directed towards me. This is directed to all of those who are in leadership in this, in this church community. Now notice how Paul defines who a leader is. How do you know what a leader is? He gives three, three uh, distinctives. He says, one, they diligently labor among you. Two, they have charge over you in the Lord. And three, they give you instruction. So they, they diligently labor, they have charge, and they give you instruction. So what do these mean? Well, what really is important for me in the diligence part is that diligence, the word diligent means that you're, you're constantly at something. It's not like a one and done. This is someone who's invested consistently in the church community, always there for you, always providing um, a means of trying to encourage you and strengthen you in the faith. So if you're diligent at something, you're like a busy squirrel collect, collecting like, you know, pine cones for the winter. You're always at it, right? You're always on the move. But I think the most important part about this whole thing to me was that he says, those who are among you, they diligently labor among you. What you understand when you hear this is this is someone who, again, is not off limits. Someone that is hardly like around you. This is someone who is approachable and is close and there for you at, at any moment's notice. If you're among someone, you're always amongst the church community. Now, Paul described himself as being amongst the Thessalonians back in chapter 2-7 when he described himself in family language. And there, in 2-7, in he says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. So what we have here is a picture of family language, parental affection, someone who's not off limits, and you know, not someone sitting in the office from 9 to 5 waiting for an appointment to come. Someone who's like out there willing to mix and mingle with the people of the church community. And so this is what it means, this is what it looks like to be diligently laboring amongst some people, amongst the church community. Also, we see them having this idea of being in charge. Now, this word is used in 1 Timothy 3, in verse 4, in relationship to elders. It's, it, when he describes elders as being ones who manage their own household. Well, the word charge and manage are identical words in Greek. So it's about managing something, managing the people of God. In Titus chapter 3, they use the word devote. So if you ever see the word charge over, it means to manage or devote yourselves to something. So again, this having charge over is someone who's devoted to and is seek to seeing the best um, in terms of how the church community functions. So this is a picture of someone taking responsibility for the care and concerns of the church community. And finally, giving instruction. This means that they're teaching others how to live out the Christian faith. Some of you might have the NIVs, and you'll have the word admonish there. Admonish actually means to sort of warn. So teaching doesn't just also in include encouragement and like a, like a pep rally. It also means it comes with warnings at times because there are times in our Christian lives where we need to be set on the straight and narrow, which at times is required. Now, of course, all of this instruction does not come from one's own wisdom. It comes from the wisdom of the scriptures, and it comes from the wisdom of the apostles' teaching. And so those in leadership are not to tout their own wisdom, but the wisdom of God. Now, notice in this description, though, of leaders, there's no indication given here in particular of position or title. You will find nothing here about title or position. That's not what Paul is going after in the Thessalonian community. His emphasis is on their activities, not on their title. So what he's really saying is, here's how you understand your leaders. It's what they do amongst you. The emphasis is there, not so much in the position of title 
or authority. I think that's kind of a neat little observation. So who are the ones that labor amongst us in Genesis House? Well, myself, of course, Roger, Jeff, Stuart, Laurel, and Janice. They're the primary ones who provide this leadership in our church. Paul's encouragement then to the congregation is in verse 12. He says, appreciate them. In verse 13, esteem them. And I like what Eugene Peterson says in his version, in the message. He says, overwhelm them with appreciation and love. Now, why appreciation and love? Because doing the work of leadership within God's community can, is a rewarding but often difficult task. The emotional investment, the tremendous care and concern that goes into taking care of God's people is massive. It's massive. I want to share with you a story that I just received this week to give an indication of the emotional investment it takes to love God's people and to care for them. I was talking to uh, a person who serves in, who's a leader in ministry, and um, this person was trying to help a fellow church member understand what it was like emotionally to be involved in leadership. And he, and he asked this question. He said, um, your work and your regular jobs is tough. Like, all, like you know, we know that work is hard because it's like thorns and thistles from Genesis, right? But he asked this question, how many times has your wife in the years that you've worked in your regular job shed tears over your work when you came home and explained something that happened? How many times has your wife cried in your home over things that have happened at work? And the guy looked at him and said, none. He goes, okay. He goes, my wife has frequently cried over ours. And the guy was like, point taken. And I was thinking about this. You know that Janice even too, Janice never shed a single tear in the 15 years that we were married. Actually, it would be 10 then. 10 years over the gym. When I was self-employed, she'd share frustrations. Never shed a single tear in 10 years over the work at the gym. But I can tell you with uh, honesty, many tears over Genesis House. And she's a tough cookie. I'm in Jeff's category. I'm likely to cry way quicker than Janice is. So if she's shedding tears, you can see the emotional commitment. And that's not to say to make anyone feel guilty or anything. That's just to say this is to show you how much invested we are emotionally in love and care and concern for God's people. And this is why Paul would say you need to esteem them and overwhelm them with appreciation and love because they care for you deeply. How about our attitude towards one another? And uh, here we go. Push me back, Kevin. A bunch of staccato instructions. Towards one another, we're to warn against idleness, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, exercise patience, and be non-retaliatory. These are all in verses 14 through 15. In 14, he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. This same word is used in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3. And it's speaking there of people who are idle and not willing to work um, and they earn money with their own uh, hands. They're people who are dependent on others for provisionary care when they're able-bodied to do so. So unruly in 2 Thessalonians has to do with one's work ethic. And so Paul here is saying, Admonish those, warn those who are lazy, who are living off the back of others. 
Now, what's important about this verse that I noticed was, notice who he puts the onus on to do this. He doesn't say only those who have charge over you are to admonish the unruly. Only those who diligently labor among you are to unruly. He says, we urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly. It's the job of the church to do this. So if we see people who are living this kind of lifestyle, it's all, the onus is on all of us to walk up to that brother or sister and say, hey, this is not the Lord's way for your life. Galatians 6, 1 gives us an important instruction, though, on how to do that. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. So when someone is living a sinful life, or has been caught in a sin, we're not to go up there and point fingers and put, put our finger in their chest and make them feel a bunch of shame. We're to say, listen, with a gentle spirit, this is not the Lord's way for you, and try to bring rest restoration to them. Now, this might be a painful and difficult task, as it takes courage to do so, but it's a necessary one, and the onus is not just on the leaders of the church. But what is also not on just the leaders of the church, but for the entire church community, is to encourage the faint-hearted. Now, the Thessalonians obviously had people who were faint-hearted in their church, because that's why he, Paul gave this instruction. We perhaps the, the faint heartedness, like this sort of like uh, sensitivity there, was because of their concern over the dead, thinking that they'd missed Christ's return. Or perhaps it was due to trials because of the, the afflictions they were facing. But we know in the church community there are always people who find life hard. We know that they find life overwhelming. And there's certain people that are faint-hearted, meaning they become easily discouraged more than others, particularly in the face of hardship. And so the temptation for faint-hearted Christians is to begin to contemplate giving everything up, walking away from the faith, saying, this is not worth it, this is too hard, I just want out. And so they need comfort and encouragement to persevere. And so the Lord is saying, this, this is not just a leadership's responsibility, if we see anyone in here who's contemplating giving up, who's finding life discouraging, that we're all to come around one another and love each other appropriately. Be that encouraging factor to that person. We're also to help the weak. Now, the word weak is used in different ways in the Greek language. It can include physical ailments. It can include mental ailments and spiritual ailments. So the weak here is sort of like uh, all-encompassing, just weakness in any way. So Paul, who Paul has in mind in his congregation, we don't know. But no doubt there were all three sort of um, weaknesses found within their church. And there's always going to be people in this category of life, even in Genesis House. Some are going to need physical care and practical care. Some are going to need emotional support when they're mentally struggling. There's others that are spiritually going to be in a low point that are just really struggling with their faith and where they're at with the Lord. And again, we're encouraged to be there for one another in these things. We're also told to exercise patience. Anyone who's been a Christian for a long time and has been part of a church body especially knows how important this virtue is. Now, I wonder if patience is after... Um, faint-heartedness and weakness intentionally because often um, patience is often required when you're dealing with faint-hearted and weak Christians. And just so you know, I've been in the faint-hearted and weak Christians as the pastor, so it's not like you're lesser than. Like just as early as like a couple weeks ago, I was in that category myself and had to have, be encouraged, had of encouragement given to me. So you can be at any, any, along the spiritual spectrum, you can be in any category at any given time. You're the encourager, you're also the one that needs to be encouraged. But here's the thing about it. When people are faint-hearted and weak, it does require patience, doesn't it? Because often when we see the, the brokenness in people's lives, we want changes to occur now. 
especially if we are in a strong state, we're thinking, how come they're struggling so much with this? They should easily get over this. The reality is, for a spiritual growth in many people is slow. It can be a long, drawn-out process. And so patience is required. We have to be okay recognizing that everyone's on a different journey at a different speed and has a different story. That we have to be in each other's lives for the long haul. But patience is also required in another way. If you serve alongside one another for a long period of time, you're going to recognize very quickly you have very different personalities and very different ways you want to get things done. And so your preferences are going to be at the absolute priority. And for the other individual you're serving with, they couldn't care less about your preferences. And so often the arguments and the disagreements come over how you want to administer things in the church. And so patience is required to say, it doesn't always have to be my way for things to get done well. And it's okay for someone to think differently about this. It's okay. The way I treat my brother or sister is more important than how this gets accomplished. And how about not repaying evil for evil? Uh, I would call this being non-retaliatory. Again, the more we hang out with one another, the more we get to know one another, the more conflict is going to happen. We don't live in Disneyland in the church community. We think just because we're all Christians that everything's just going to be smooth sailing all the time. It's not a Disney story. It was always a perfect ending. This is like, it's work. And the more you get to know people and hang out with people and serve with one another, the more conflict emerges. And so Paul is asking of us, in those times of conflict, we're not to be retaliatory. When someone hurts you, when evil is done to you, the immediate response that we often have is we want payback. We want justice, and we want everything to be even, Stephen. They have to hurt as much as they've hurt me. What Paul is really asking of us is that we'll be people of grace and mercy, and that forgiveness sets the tone for our relationships, not payback. And I want to read you a quote from Gordon Fee, because this, I mean, I couldn't have, I would never have said this better myself. Gordon Fee's a scholar, and it's reflected in his, uh, in his uh, comment here. The real difficulty most of God's people have with this admonition is that God may not give such people what they deserve, but may show them the same kind of mercy that he showed to themselves. But Paul saw clearly that in a world where God's people are implicated in the same fallenness as all others, even the best of them do not see clearly the end from the beginning, and retaliation is simply not a part of becoming followers of the crucified one. Isn't that the case? It's kind of uh, when you want payback, there's a fear that God's not going to give back the justice that you believe that they deserve. And yet we want that same grace given to us from the Lord. That's powerful. But if we follow all these admonitions in terms of how we relate to one another in verses 14 through 15, he summarizes it by saying this. This is like the catch-all phrase. He says, um, seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. The summary statement is seek after that which is good. The motto, what Paul is really getting at, the motto is this. If you have this attitude in the church, you will do well. It's not about what I can get. It's about what I can give. If you serve one another with what can I give as opposed to what can I get, you will fulfill Paul's instruction in verses 14 through 15. And let's finally look at the last section, our attitude towards God. Again, Staccato's instructions. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything, 
and be open to the gift of prophecy. So what does it mean to rejoice always? Well, again, remember the incredible statement this would have been to the Thessalonians. They're a church facing tremendous hardship and suffering for Jesus. If anything, you would think the tone of the church would be the absence of joy, the absence of rejoicing. But Paul was saying, no, you can still rejoice in the midst of trials. So Paul's emphasis is not so much in the experience of joy, but on the active expression of it. And so he's really saying, well, actually, Paul in Philippians deals with the subject in detail. It's a good study. Paul uses the word rejoice or joy or be glad over 20 times in the letter of Philippians. Again, and the amazing thing about him in this letter is that he's in the midst of suffering. He's actually in jail when he writes this letter. But he makes, he gives us the secret of joy. A couple, two or three times in the letter, he says, my joy is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul is really saying the rejoicing comes from being in relationship with Jesus Christ. With, with Jesus Christ, you can transcend all circumstances that you're facing. Now, what I like about this is he says, this is God's, these things are um, God's will in your life. <laughs> so he's really saying, this is a matter of first importance that Christ be exalted. It's a matter of first importance. Personal confession. I am terrible at keeping this perspective. The Lord has to deal with me before he deals with you when I study these words. If I just walked away with that one thing, that would be enough for me in this sermon. When things are tough, when things are hard, my automatic response is not to rejoice in the Lord. It's to run away and just be like have sort of self-pity and frustration. But Paul was in jail and beaten unfairly when he said rejoice in the Lord. The Thessalonians are going through like life, hell on earth in many ways. And Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. If your attitude is anything like mine, then God needs to work in our hearts and our minds over this issue. Paul also tells us to pray without ceasing probably important to define what ceasing means because if we take this literally you and I would never sleep we would never go to bed we'd be up 24 hours a day drinking monster energy drinks we'd never go to work we'd never spend time with family you'd never show up to church on Sunday if you were to never stop praying it means that's how, you'd, that's how you'd live your life literally. The problem is it would mean that you're being disobedient in other parts of the life that Jesus asks you to live out. Because live out. he tells you to work. He tells you to uh, be a family person. You know, He wants you to come to church and, and be with God's people. So how do we work through this? Well, to pray without ceasing would be really that you would always have your heart open to communicating with the Lord. It's a heart that says, you know what, Lord? It doesn't matter where I am and what I'm doing. I include you in my daily walk. I can be in the grocery store. I can invite you to be with me. I can be driving to work. I can invite you to be with me. I can be making food in the, in the uh, kitchen. I can invite you to be with me. I can be playing sports, and I happen to be sitting on the bench waiting for my shift. I can invite you to be with me. I think taking a school exam, I can invite you to be with me. I can be on vacation, I can invite you to be with me. It's having this open line of communication between the Lord and you. And you're praying to him and you're asking him to be part of all of your daily life and all that's going on. He also tells us to give thanks in everything. Now this is really important. 
He doesn't say to give thanks for everything. He says to give thanks in everything. Why do I make that distinction? Because if that would mean if I got cancer, I would say, thank you, God, for giving me cancer. Or if my child got hit by a car, thank you, God, that my kid got hit by a car. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We're not to give thanks for those things, but we can give thanks in everything. In other words, Lord, I can still look for ways to praise you, even in the hardest of circumstances. And I can give you thanks for your faithfulness and how you have redeemed certain situations that seemed unredeemable, and so on. I think I can summarize giving thanks with a story probably best of all. When I went to Regent College in January and took the series, What is the Gospel? You know, we, we sit in class for hour after hour after hour, and you never know what you're going to retain in, from a professor. But this, what I'm sharing with you now, is probably the top three moments in the class and had nothing to do with actually the subject matter that we're studying. It was an offhanded comment he made between lectures. So my professor is uh, Daryl Johnson. He's a phenomenal man, uh, well-educated, but he's a pastor. That's his primary calling as a pastor. He gets hired to be a professor for certain times of the year. He's in the age of retirement, but he still continues to preach at this church in Vancouver. Daryl Johnson is around 70 years old, and he self-admitted to the class that he dealt with depression a couple years ago. So he's about 68 or so, somewhere in that neighborhood. He says, I've dealt with depression recently. And then he said this, can I tell you, class, how I got over my depression? He said, I read the book of Romans every day for a year, like different chapters, and Romans helped me get through my depression. Now, don't ask me how. <laughs> That's like saying Leviticus got me through my depression. But um, in the New Testament equivalent. For most of us, it makes us depressed to read it because we don't understand it. But he's a professor and a pastor, so he probably gets through it. But Romans helped him. I don't know how, but here was the key thing. He said, I made a list of 20 things every single day I was thankful to God for, despite how I was feeling. 70-year-old man sitting down at his desk on a piece of paper, God, I thank you for this, 20 things every single day for a year as well as doing personal devotions. The antidote for his depression was Thanksgiving. Isn't that powerful? Give thanks in everything. You don't have to give thanks for everything. Now, here's the clincher. He says, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Last time we talked about what is God's will for your life, we said from chapter 4, it was the, in relation to one's character. His will is character, a life of holiness. And this time, he actually says, God's will is in relation to how you praise him. That's how you relate to him. You see, Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and being thankful, these things are God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. Now you might think, well, Paul, put your money where your mouth is. Do you do this? Paul would say, yes. Do you remember what I wrote in chapter 3 and verse 8, 9 and 10? Turn there with me now. Chapter 3, verse 8. 9 and 10. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul Praise without ceasing, night and day for the Thessalonians. He is giving thanks in verse 9. He is rejoicing in verse 9. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, this is, the, this is what your MO needs to look like as you relate to God. 
just as I do and I have taught you. Amazing. And finally, be open to the gift of prophecy. Let's read this as one fell swoop. He says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Okay, I think we should start with what is prophecy? What is it? There are some within the Christian community that believe that prophecy is simply another word for the scriptures. So when he says, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecy, it has to relate to the word of God, period. Here's the trouble. Do you have, if, it's, if that's the case, then Paul would be saying to the Thessalonians, do not despise the word of God. Do you have any indication in Thessalonians that the Thessalonians hate the word of God? Is that the picture we get of these guys? Not at all. Not at all. They love the Lord. In fact, he says, I'm, you are, I am pleased with your faith. I am pleased with your faith. Furthermore, in chapter 1, he says, in verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit in full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sakes, you became imitators of us. So these people receive the word of God to the point that they receive persecution and stand up for their faith. And everything in the letter says these guys love the scriptures. They're, they're sold out Christians. So it can't be that. So what is it? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, and in verse 7 and 8, Paul describes prophecy as a Holy Spirit-given gift beyond the Scriptures. It's a Holy Spirit-given gift to edify the church. Now, he lists a bunch of gifts there. He says words of knowledge are gifts, wisdom are gifts, healings are gifts, miracles are gifts, and prophecy is included. So it's something given that's beyond the Word of God. It's a Holy Spirit-given gift. And he concludes in verse 11 of chapter 12 by stating this, but, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So the gift of prophecy is something distributed to an individual in the Christian community as the Lord desires it. We can't do anything to, to make it happen. He has to give it to us. And in, in Corinthians, he says that the gift of prophecy is there to edify the church. 1 Corinthians 14.3 is the main verse. It says, But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So the gift of prophecy is designed to strengthen the community, encourage the community, and comfort the community. There are exceptions. You can also see other areas in which it serves as a warning. For example, Agabus stands up in Acts and says, by the way, there's a famine coming. There's a famine coming. So it's there to warn the church of a future catastrophe. But the general principle of prophecy is there to edify and build up God's people. And so notice his instruction then. He says, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophetic utterance. Now, we're not told what the issue is there, but we can see clearly that there was this, something going on in the community where people were not happy with prophecy in the church and were therefore were quenching the spirit, saying, no, that's not from God. Now, why would they do this? The same reason why the Christian community today will often do this. A lot of the times it's because of the abuses within the church. People standing up and says, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, wearing it like a spiritual badge, like they're better than everybody else, but also a lot of their predictions never coming true. And then we get frustrated and throw the baby out with the bathwater. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Prophecy does come from the Holy Spirit, so don't immediately have the attitude of disdain towards it. 
But at the same time, because humans can get things wrong, he says, test everything. Verse 21, examine everything carefully. Now, Paul doesn't tell us how to examine it. But I do believe there are two texts in the New Testament that prove to be helpful. The first one is 1 Corinthians 14.3. If someone shares a prophetic message, here's the question. Is it comforting, strengthening, and encouraging? Does it seek to build up the body of Christ? If it is, that's a good indication that it's from the Lord. But another really important text is actually found in 2 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And since we're so close, why don't we flip over and look at this? I want you to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed by either a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So here's what's important. Someone in the church has given a false message. Someone's told, give them a false word. They've told the Thessalonians, the, the, the day of the Lord has happened. He's already come. And now the people in the church are frantic. And Paul says, don't be disturbed as if a spirit gave you this or a message or a letter as if it's come. That's not true. And verse 15 is the key. In verse 15, he makes this statement. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word of mouth or by the letter from us. Here's what he's telling them to do. You were told this thing that contradicts the apostles' teaching and the scriptures that you know. He says, I want you to return to the validity of scriptures and the things that you were taught that you know to be from God's people. Even the letters from us as the apostles. So that's a really good indication for us as well. When we hear prophetic messages, what criteria do we use? Does it line up with the Bible? Are the things stated? Can we see examples of them in Scripture? Does this line up with the way God thinks, the kind of things he says, the kind of things he speaks about? Or does it contradict the very word of God? If that's the case, it's not even to be considered for the church community that's why we're to examine everything carefully, hold to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, we do have prophetic protocol in Genesis House. And this was adopted after John and Charlene and the Fage family came here. And I want to remind you of what the prophetic protocol is here so you know how to operate in this community. So here's the criteria we use. Number one, does the prophetic word given align with the framework of Scripture or does it contradict it? That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. If it lines up with the word of God, we will consider it. If it doesn't, it's out. Number two, does the prophetic word encourage, comfort, or strengthen the church? Again, that lines up with 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. Uh, no sin, no dates, and no mates. We do that because we recognize that we can be in error, and so we seek to protect the God, the God, God's people. So from the public, and we're talking here public, right? This is where the, this platform was opened up and we share a message. We would never, um, at this point anyway, allow this to happen where uh, someone says, I have a prophetic word. They come up here and they say, by the way, you know, Let's pretend Jace is like, you know, 22, and he says, by the way, there's this girl, and her name is this, and you're going to marry her. We'd never allow that to happen from the church, from the front of the church. Or by October 21st in 2024, you're going to have this job promotion and make 180 grand a year. We wouldn't allow that to come from the church either, because the chances of getting those things specifically right are very are pretty slim. And if, and if they are, we'd rather you do that kind of thing privately, not publicly. We want to protect God's name as much as we can. Finally, any prophetic word must be written out and shared with the leadership of the church before 
it is given to an individual or the congregation at large. So if you believe you have a prophecy from the Lord, you do not get a public platform in this church and have the right to take the mic. It gets submitted to the leadership of the church. We take time to review it, to pray through it, to look through scripture to see if it contradicts it. It only then, if we agree, that could be publicly shared or shared with an individual. If not, it just gets discarded for the meantime. The person who received the revelation must keep a personal copy for themselves of the prophetic word and only share with the intended recipient if it's approved by the leadership. And again, this way we seek to protect the church community and protect the Lord's name all at the same time. Now, I remember this from John and Charlene when they left here. They said that um, the church that they know of that has the highest predictions of prophecy coming true was a church in Glasgow. And the reason was is for 20 years they've been following this protocol and they've had the most accurate amount of predictions, of prophetic predictions come out of their church more than any other one. Those who do not follow this type of protocol fall into error way more frequent. So again, we are careful, and but we, do, we don't want to do what Paul says. We don't want to quench the spirit and we don't want to despise prophetic utterances just because of the abuses that we've seen and the hurts we've seen in God's community. If we do this right and we do this healthily, we can actually honor the Lord and each other in these things. And so we want to fulfill what Paul asks us to do. And so we're open to the gift with protection and measure. So Paul then is given a list of final instructions so that these Thessalonians experience a healthy church community. And he comes to the conclusion by saying this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the word, the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul ends by reiterating his great desire for the Thessalonian church. He knows that he's absent. So his prayer is simply this, that God who is faithful will complete in them the work that's already begun. He wants God to set them apart from sin and sanctify them so that their whole being is kept blameless for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been the theme of this letter. And he desires that this letter be read to all those who follow Christ. It's to go to the Thessalonians, yes, but he wants it to be read to all the brethren. Anybody who's a Christian, a follower of Jesus, this letter is to be made public. And so we are grateful that we are included in that great list. And God's people said, Amen. So what are we to learn from this letter? Again, I don't want to just do staccato statements like, you know, the one lesson is that you need to encourage the faint-hearted. Another lesson is that you need to uh, not repel evil for evil. That gets too redundant. So I've tried to summarize the big picture of the lessons here, of the sermon. First of all, the church body is to highly esteem those who labor over and instruct them in the Lord. Again, it's not a, it's not a cry for personal... Um, uh, like a bolstering of uh, of our, you know, personalities or anything like that. It's just it's an instruction from Paul. To esteem those who are highly, who have charge over you, and love you. Secondly, uh, the entire church community and not just the leadership are called to admonish, encourage, and strengthen those who are in need within the body of Christ. This is really important. All of us are responsible for every single person here. If you see someone hurting, if you see someone in need, you need someone encouragement, please be the one to pick up the phone, be the one to send the text message, be the one to drop off the meal, be the one to have the visit, be the one to run the errand, be the one to get up early to take them to the airport so they don't have to pay for parking. You know, just be that one. Just look out for the needs of one another within the church community. Also, in our relationship with God, there is to be an open line of communication 
rejoicing and giving thanks in good times and bad. This is about praying without ceasing, rejoicing always, giving thanks in everything. It doesn't And again, Paul did it in hardship. The Thessalonians are doing it in hardship. Don't let the circumstances be the dictator of whether you are a thankful or rejoicing person. That is the MO of a Christian. And finally, as followers of Jesus, we are to be open to the gift of prophecy operating with the, within the church body. Open to the gift with some strong precautions in place. Father, we give you thanks for the letter of the Thessalonians and how much we have learned over the last eight to nine weeks. It is such a rich letter and I just pray that we've got a fresh look and a new perspective, Lord, as to what you were doing then and what you want to do now amongst your people. We rejoice in the fact, Lord, that you have given us this for our instruction, that you have made this available to us and that you made it possible for us to learn from Paul. And we rejoice and give thanks that uh, as we think that this was written 2,000 years ago and many things seem to be sort of far removed from us that we still face the same issues today and so we can learn how to uh, live as your people and how to live as a healthy church body. Pray, God, now that we would take your letter to heart and that we would now seek to serve one another um, to even a greater degree than we already do. I am thankful for this community, and I hear often about the things that are taking place behind the scenes, and people do it with a quiet uh, spirit and don't and don't sound a trumpet as to the things that they're doing. And I'm, But I often hear about them. I'm so thankful for the generosity that exists. But I know Paul would say to us, Genesis House, you are... I am pleased with you, but you can still excel all the more. So, Lord, where we're missing things and where we could do better, Lord, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us and tell us when and who needs help and when to act and how to act. Lord, when we hear that voice, that we wouldn't just ignore it and go, well, I'm just you know, I'm too tired, I'm too lazy. Was that really God speaking? That we'd take your cues and we would actually live them out and move immediately upon them. Lord, it doesn't take much. Sometimes it's just a phone call. Sometimes it's just a meal. Sometimes it's just stopping to see how someone is doing, Lord. May we be sensitive to those those uh, voices, the voice of your spirit and the, and the things that we hear and we act upon them. Thank you too for how you're leading us, how you're teaching us. We look forward to the Christmas season now as we give the next three weeks to you in terms of remembering your birth and what that means for how it's supposed to change us and change the world and change your church. May you get all the praise and honor that you're due over this next month from our church community. In Jesus' name, amen.